Next Chapter Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Sally Kate Holmes, Managing Director of Next Chapter Podcasts, here to tell you about a pretty cool new offering from our friends at Apollo Podcasts. You can now find the play on podcasts on Apollo Plus, a creator-owned platform where every subscriber helps audio fiction creators such as us. You can listen ad-free, early access to exclusives, behind-the-scenes supercuts, and more on Apollo Plus. On top of all that, 70% of the revenue on Apollo Plus goes directly to creators. Join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or by going to apollopods.com. Hi, my name is Michael Goodfriend, and I'm the executive producer of the Play On Podcasts. Nelson T. Eusebio III is a freelance director, he's a producer, and he's an award-winning filmmaker. He's the former artistic director of the Leviathan Lab, an Asian-American creative studio. In 2008, he co-founded Creative Destruction, a New York City-based theater collective. He's directed and developed work at theaters throughout the country, including the Public Theater, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, South Coast Rep, Old Globe, Playmakers Rep, My Yi Theater Company, and he's a member of the Lincoln Center Theater Directors Lab. He was the resident director at the Ensemble Studio Theater and is a recipient of the 2009 to 2011 NEATCG Career Development Program for Directors. He was the 2012 Phil Killian Directing Fellow at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and he has an MFA in directing from the Yale School of Drama. He is the director of the Play On podcast series, Love's Labor's Lost, and that's why I'm talking to him today. Nelson T. Eusebio III, welcome to the bonus content series for the Play On podcast series, Love's Labor's Lost. Thank you, Michael. (laughs) I feel... Almost embarrassed to say this, but I'm the only of that many very long bio. Uh, the only thing I would add is say I'm also currently the associate artistic director here at Kansas City Repertory Theater in Kansas City, Missouri. The only um, reason that... we left that out is because we don't talk about Kansas City. Uh, oh, we on the East I Coast, <laughs> uh, we're either Eagles fans or uh, if if you're a part of play on podcasts, you have to be a Packers fan because that's, you know. That's my right. I, Michael, I totally understand. As a person born and raised in Philadelphia and a lifelong Eagles fan, it is incredibly painful to live in the same place where they beat the Eagles for the Super Bowl championship. Ouch. Uh, it was, yes, it was even more humiliating to have to hear the screams and cheers of uh, drunken Chiefs fans uh, that evening. And then a month and a half later, my wife shot a. Super Bowl commercial with Patrick Mahomes, which then just added to the pain and agony. Oh my god! So she she was in the commercial. Your wife was in the commercial with Patrick Mahomes. Yes, uh, for Head and Shoulders, not for not Super Bowl related, but you know, post Super Bowl, uh, I was both happy for her to to book that commercial and also incredibly pained. (laughs) Anyway. that that must have upped your ante. I'm sure you, how come, you know, I'm, it's going to be a very short hop from associate artistic director to artistic director after your wife shoots a commercial with Patrick Mahomes. You just go to the board and be like, here's my card. <laughs> that's, that's a, that's exactly right. If I could just get Patty to, to, to endorse my candidacy, we'll be fine. <laughs> but Hey, we're here to talk about theater, not football. So, We'll jump right to it. But thank you for that. I can't believe that I forgot to mention you are Associate Artistic Director at 
Kansas City Rep, which in all honesty is a highly respected uh, regional theater company that many, many uh, terrific actors have worked at and been through. Uh, so uh, kudos to you for that. I want to talk to you about your name. Can we start there? Nelson T. Eusebio III. What what does the T stand for? Uh, the T stands for Tang. Um, and thank you uh, for let's I'm unpacking it. Um, I am the first generation uh, of Eusebios born here in this country. Uh, my parents came from the Philippines. So the reason I have the T and the third in my name is to uh, the T stands for Tang, which was my mother's maiden name. So I try and uh, honor that side of the family through that. And the third, obviously, um, as my father was Nelson, my grandfather was Nelson. Um, and so I try and honor that sort of lineage uh, as an immigrant uh, as well. Um, so that's kind of the story behind my name is that um, it's not that I'm like Thurston Howell III in, in Gilligan's Island, but more trying to really honor where I came from and every space that I step into. Thank you for sharing that. You know, uh, lineage and um, family history has been an unexpected recurring theme in this production. In our uh, conversation with Josh Wilder that happened in the previous uh, bonus content episode, he talked about his family discovering that his grandfather actually was a theater person who uh, attended Howard University, and that played a direct role in your concept with Josh in setting this production of Love's Labor's Lost at Howard University with an all-Black cast. So it's uh, remarkable and kind of Shakespearean, right, to go into uh, our antecedents, where we come from, how how we ended up here. Did you know you wanted to be a theater artist early on? Oh, no, not at all. I was going to be, a, if you had talked to 11 or 12-year-old Nelson, he was going to be a comic book artist. I grew up loving comic books, um, big comic book geek. I love all of that Marvel, DC, all that kind of stuff. Um, and when I was 15, um, we moved to San Diego from Southern New Jersey. And to be honest with you, Michael, theater at that point in my, in my life was for the kids in the band and the white kids. And, mm. um, because the kids in the band played in the orchestra pit or they sang and danced, um, and the majority of everyone who did theater at that point in my mind was, was white. Um, when we moved to San Diego, which changed my perspective on everything, uh, San Diego, the area that we grew up in is predominantly um, Latino, Asian American, and and white. And that transformed my perspective on what was possible to go from being um, a minority in, in group of representation to a majority was such a huge change for me um the joke or the point i like to make was that growing up in new jersey there were probably eight asian kids in my entire high school uh and when i graduated high school in san diego there were 12 just no wins that graduated in my graduating class i followed two girls into a theater um they said what are you doing here i said uh, I don't know. I said, what are you ladies doing here? They said, we're auditioning for play. And I was like, that sounds fun. So I auditioned with them. Uh, it didn't quite work out the way I thought uh, in that they did not get into the play. I did get into the play. <laughs> uh, luckily, I did manage to fall in love with a different girl who was also in that cast. Uh, it was Tennessee Williams' Camino Real because, you know, if, if there's anything young high schoolers should be doing, it's a Tennessee Williams play written while he was on uh, the considerable effects of, oh gosh, which drug was he on at the time? It, it's not acid. It's, <laughs> it's um, a, you can trace his career according to the drug he was on at the time. Yeah, probably opium, yes. right? I, mean, I yes, don't know. I think so. I think you're, I think you're correct. There was definitely some opium or opioids happening. Uh, Tennessee did love his bourbon, but 
I don't think we were we were in that phase. No one writes Camino Real while they're drinking bourbon. You definitely write Camino <laughs> Real where you're on some version of hallucinogenics. Uh, yes, I mean, you know, you look at some of Shakespeare's plays and you're like, which particular thing was he imbibing in at that time, or which which girl <laughs> problem was he having um, at that time? So that's the the long story short. I followed two girls into a theater, and it turned out. Uh, Okay, that started, I was 15. Um, I'm 40-something now. Uh, and so that one following changed, it changed, moving really changed my life to to a different place. And then I didn't really think theater was going to be it for me until I was in college and I read uh, David Henry Wong's Fresh Off the Boat, FOB, um, and you know that feeling you have, and, and I found out later in Shakespeare too, where someone describes an emotion or a feeling or a thought, and it feels so true to you that you are just lit up by that human truth, whatever it might be, whether it's an insight into love or an insight into identity. Um, I had that feeling and that experience of being seen um, by this gentleman who I had never met before. Um, and that sort of hooked me into, into the whole thing. I love that description of theater and art in general, that an emotion, a feeling, or thought is described in a way that feels right to you and gives you a sense of recognition of yourself, an affirmation, really, of your own identity. Yeah, absolutely. So that for you was really a, a sort of a catalyzing moment where you said, this is what, this is it. I, I, I am going to be a part of this storytelling medium. I think that was one part of it. And then <clears throat> I think the, excuse me, I think the biggest gift I got from undergrad was I met a woman named Leslie Ishii. Leslie is the current artistic director at Perseverance. But she taught this class called self-starting and i thought it was going to be about how to do headshots and resumes and and have an acting career uh i thought i was gonna be an actor because we all think we're going to be actors when we're in in undergrad um i thought i was gonna be an actor and it turned out after taking her class that no what i was going to be was i was going to be an artist and i was going to figure out how to make art and produce art and i wasn't going to be limited by the opportunities that were in front of me. And once you understand or have that realization that there is a lot more potentially out there for you as a human, as an artist, uh, within a field that you love, if you're willing to work for it, if you're willing to take ownership of your artistic destiny, if you're willing to take ownership of your life, that life isn't just happening to you, right? That you're actively participating in it. Um, that was a huge gift to me and and that was the big transformative thing and several years later i would i after i graduated i would go to los angeles i would do theater there at center theater group under the amazing auspices of uh che Yu and luis alfaro under there uh and diane rodriguez worked on the new the new play now festival and then uh a couple years after that i would attend our joint alma mater, the Yale School of Drama, uh, and then moved to New York. Do you think that your your interest in comic books served your storytelling ability? Did it did it help? It, I, I mean, I guess this is a, a question where I'm leading to an answer, but it seems like to me they're they're that that comic books graphic novels things like that really they're they're storyboards yeah and they kind of help you visualize things so clearly was did, have you ever thought about that 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 was fed into your your work as an artist yeah absolutely when i was in undergrad in my first directing class they had us create uh, we did a pictorialization exercise where, <clears throat> excuse me, we, they had us do a pictorialization exercise where you saw they had you take three different images that you located or found and then replicate those on stage. But the thing that connected the images was storytelling. And so my experience as a comic book 
artist at the time, or the, the very limited artist, but um, leads me a lot to, the, it affects the way I direct. So I will sketch out ideas or mini sets or, well, I love having conversations with designers where both of us have like our sketch pads open and we're, we're sort of storyboarding key moments in, in the show. Um, so that feels really amazing to me. Um, when I got to direct a couple of short films, that was, it felt like a big comic book artist in me and the, the theater artist and the film got to meet in filmmaking land, which was really exciting. The funny thing about that part of it is the strength that I feel like I have as a director nowadays isn't just my visual sense, but understanding that theater is a more auditory medium. If we hear it, we feel it. I, the thing I always say is when we're doing a play is if I can't hear you, I can't see you. And if I can't see you, then I don't care about you. So the key to empathy, obviously, which makes so much sense and ties into exactly what we're talking about is, is listening, right? Um, and the key to an audience having empathy with our characters, with our story, is for them to be able to hear us. So bar one in theater always is, can I hear you? If I can hear you, then I can see you. It's amazing how many times you'll sit in a play or in a theater where, and someone is not that loud and we kind of, it feels almost like they're dim. And when someone comes on an old pro or, or just someone who comes on with volume and energy, it, it's, it's almost like, wow, now we're looking at something in HD, you know, both auditorily and visually. And I don't know why that is, but theater isn't, is, even more of an auditory medium than it is a a visual medium to a certain extent. How did you end up finding play on Shakespeare? I wound up finding play on Shakespeare because of Dr. Louis Douthat. I was the 2012 Phil Killian directing fellow at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Okay, so you need to During, explain to us what, what that is, the Phil Killian oh, directing oh fellow. Yes. At so Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Go ahead. Right. So Libby Apple and Mark Lemos are very good friends. They were very good friends with a, a talented director named Phil Killian. Okay. So um, uh, I'm not Libby Apple, former artistic director of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And Mark yes. Lemos well, was uh, also he, director there. Yes. Mark Lemos was director there. And Mark Lemos is, was previously the artistic director at Westport Country Playhouse at Hartford Stage. Uh, Mark has had a long and decorated artistic a career in artistic leadership. And so um, Libby and Mark created the Phil Killian directing, after Phil passed, I, I believe from uh, some form of illness, uh, Libby and Mark created the Phil Killian Directing Fellowship for directors uh, in, to honor him. Um, it's a six month, five or six month fellowship. You go to the Oregon, you are in residency at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. You assist on two plays in two different spaces as well as a director reading of a classical play um but you're also part of the community so you can you can get involved in a lot of different kinds of things there's a lot of tremendous artists at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival not just actors but actors directors designers uh drum turks, playwrights uh Louis I don't remember what Louis's official title was during our time there but she was essentially the head of dramaturgy at OSF during this time and had been for several, several years. Um, an incredibly intelligent human who had this idea that Shakespeare's plays needed to be translated. When I was at OSF, she was just really launching this idea. So she, I think she had done a couple of sort of test or pilot runs with maybe Kenneth Cavender I think on a, on a couple, I'm not going to document that part of the history particularly specifically or well, but she had tried it with Kenneth a couple of times. And then I think she was able to find funding and interest. And so she was going to commission playwrights to adapt the entirety of Shakespeare's canon. Um, many theaters will commission one or two or five or 10, if you're like a really big deal, if you're going to commission 30 something plays, uh, that is a huge challenge because each play needs to be shepherded 
to its completion. Otherwise, <clears throat> excuse me, otherwise they just, so there are there are many commissions that don't get completed, right? Um, and Louis had specific rules around this. And so one of the things I will always remember about my time in my first introduction to play on is walking into Louis's office and on her board were all of the titles and a huge list of playwrights that she was interested in and lines sort of connecting playwright to playwright to play and some plays had multiple names next to them with question marks but it was like it was the beginning of the or the first recorded thing I remember of oh my gosh this is a massive incredibly ambitious incredibly exciting project and and Louie will talk to anybody about it she has so much passion and enthusiasm and she was like what do you think about this and what do you think about these particular artists and what do you think and and I was like, this is incredible. Um, and so we had we would have constant conversations. Uh, I don't know if there were conversations so much as with me just dropping in and being like, what do you think about, you know, this person, this playwright for, for this particular play? Uh, and she'd be like, that's a great idea or mm -hmm, interesting. <laughs> uh, and so <clears throat> that was 2012, you know, and cut to, several three five, five years later i can't remember so we did a couple of readings um and she reached out to me about a couple of plays um and and i'm not gonna lie uh some of them they were they were not the they were not the big ones they weren't like it's 12th night or hamlet or or all of those and and so um but they were still sort of in my wheelhouse so i love rom-coms and when she came, she called me and, and she was like, what do you think about Love's Labor's Lost? Let me introduce you to Josh. Tell me what you think. Um, I met Josh and I think I think we did a phone call before we did a, a workshop. Uh, Josh and I are both from, you know, from Philly. Josh has got deeper Philly roots, Philadelphia roots than I do. We, he had written this play called Salt, Pepper, Ketchup that just felt, it talks about the Asian and Black communities and how they relate to one another in that particular area and i talking about things you identify you're like oh i know those people i grew up near those people my parents definitely grew up near those people um it was very it was a sort of simpatico energy right away and we had Davina, who is this lovely british dramaturg um right so it's these two kids from philly and this british dramaturg um, working on doing a couple of different workshops and, and starting to figure out um, how we talked and how we worked together. And I feel like it, that was the beginning of, of the two of us building a relationship and, and having trust. And I got to a chance to work with Yvette Nolan on the, the Henrys. Um, and so I, I got a chance to touch a couple of different types of, of plays. And then a couple of years after that, after doing a couple of readings and workshops, um, when they did the big reading festival in New York City at Classic Stage, uh, Michael, I don't know if you were you were with us or involved with that. Yeah, at that I was. Point. I was. I was cast as an actor in the uh, in five of the thirty seven translations. Oh, which ones did you do? I did King Lear. I did mm -hmm. Merchant of Venice. I played Shylock. Uh, nice. I did. Uh, 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 Oh my goodness, uh, Henry the Sixes, I believe it was, uh, and um, I think that's it. So the three Henrys, Henry Sixes, uh, and um, Merchant and Lear. Oh, Julius yeah. Caesar. Yep. Uh, mm. It was a, and uh, we've talked about it in this series in the past, but it was really an incredible artistic experience. It's what turned me around. Uh, I had been a, a real a naysayer about this entire endeavor but getting up in front of an audience and performing these plays with this translation seeing the immediacy uh feeling the immediacy hearing these plays in a new way made me a, a believer you know I, I i saw the value of it and especially when we got into creating the podcast it, it was a no-brainer to me uh, because there was so much out there already of audio shakespeare I just, uh, you know, I felt that there, when you when you don't have the visual to assist the hearing, the language uh, becomes much more of an impediment 
you know, if if there are references to things, jokes that are made that don't land anymore, if you can hear it in a new way, you get to see it in a way that uh, really sort of probably is closer to what people in Shakespeare's time experienced when they got to witness and hear these plays. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was making me think of so I did one of I did I, I did one of the Henrys. Um, we had a wonderful, amazing time. Um, I like you. I think I touched one two. I did I did Love's Labors. I did one of the Henrys, um, and I feel like I did another one as well that's escaping me. But it was Doug, it was Josh, and it was Yvette. Um and we had a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, and I would agree it was an artistic highlight. The thing that, because uh, Eileen, my wife, uh, Eileen Rivera, was also in one of our casts uh, and was a participant. The thing that she and I talk about quite often was it was an entire summer. It was a very strange summer of Shakespeare. Um, if you were at 440 Lafayette, which is where we rehearsed all those plays, right? It was like all the best and most wonderful New York Shakespeare actors and a couple of OSFers all just hanging out uh doing these readings um and it was such a tremendous amount of fun you know because it was only two or three days we were rehearsing these things and then we were throwing them in front of people um and it was very very exciting the other thing that I learned during that period of time is how accessible these translations are you know usually you bring the lexicon and we spend all this time deciding what does this word mean or what does that word mean what a treat for directors were literally after i didn't have to bring my lexicons people just understood all the words so what a what a treat from from that point of view that to me felt like the the sort of culmination of our experience with the with the play podcast um, Josh and I were had a really great time. We had a wonderful cast for that for our reading, and um, certainly it was a highlight of my career. And I didn't need convincing at that time because I had already sort of played around in that sandbox. But it really showed me, and I think it showed a lot of other people. It took it back to the, the sort of roots of what Shakespeare was writing with. Right? It had he had an ensemble of people. That he used over and over and over again and tailored the place to them. Um, yeah. And so you got to see many places where it's he had clowns in his in his company and he was like, oh, you two, just like make some stuff up and improv, and I'll break that down. <laughs> Join Play On Premium to get merch like t-shirts, hoodies, and coffee mugs, ad-free episodes, and bonus content video featuring interviews with the actors, producers, playwrights, and directors who brought it all to life. Go to ncpodcasts.com and subscribe to Play On Premium to support the art and the artists. Did you know, Josh, prior to this experience, I know you both went to Yale, but you didn't go there at the same time? No, we missed each other uh, by several years. In fact, um, I just did a, uh, a 12th night with uh, my viola was Francesca McKenzie and Francesca and Josh were co-artistic directors of the Yale Cabaret during their time. Ah. So Josh and I missed each other by several years. Um, Francesca, who is in our King Lear uh, podcast series and is also in our Othello series, playing Amelia. Oh, nice. Yes, she's a lovely, wonderful actor. Very, I I don't, I don't blame you guys for using her. She's pretty good. (laughs) What's it been like for you to make this transition into the audio medium with this play? It's been super interesting. I will oftentimes when I'm directing a play play, I will in a run through, I'll close my eyes and just listen to it and see if the rhythm feels right. Um, We have done a lot of that. Um, I've never directed a podcast before. So there are times when you, Michael, as, as executive producer will bring up, this sounds funny or the room tone is strange. And sometimes I don't pick up on that. And sometimes I do. Um, also, your mind wants to fill in the blanks for certain things in terms of a storytelling moment. But you realize you're filling in that blank because you know the story. When you've directed every version of this, other short of a film uh, of Love's Labors, you know, you're very familiar with the story. So it's easy for me to go. And then Barone does this. 
but the audiences can't see Barone doing that, and they can't see Matt Matthew Elijah Webb making that face. Um, so you want to hear Matthew Elijah Webb making that face. You want to hear Barone walking away. So that part has been exciting uh, and at times challenging. Um, I think the translation from Catherine is almost cinematic in certain places. It's like we're doing a walk and talk now and we're in this room and we're in that room. And that is fun because in the same way that you would do it in a, if there was if we were filming it or if we were on stage, you're creating auditory business for the actors that hopefully amplifies the stakes of the, of whatever is happening in the play. Um, uh, S. Devlin, who's one of the best set designers working alive right now, says one of her specialties is creating is is creating the psychology of the space, and I feel like auditorily. That is something that Lindsay and Catherine's adaptation does is in many ways by transposing the location to Howard, but still setting the play within a play within a theater and having the sort of conventions of like what theater sort of felt like or looked like or sounded like at that time, or having Moth be um, a young janitor, right? Who's cleaning up the, who's cleaning the band, the band room. And at times when Don Armada wants him to sing to alleviate his melancholy, you know, Moth is singing, but there's also musical instrumentation that either works for or against his song. And so I think what has been really smart about Catherine's adaptation is a, um, what is a, what is a nicer way of saying Um, it streamlines and hones some of the action, uh, this was one of Shakespeare's not like early, early plays, but still in the middle. Um, you definitely see the roots of Much Ado About Nothing in here. You definitely see the roots of Midsummer in here. Um, and yet this play doesn't quite have the same uh, the same elegant structure of either one of those plays. Um, I would argue Much Ado is a little less about structure and more about this incredible um, speeches and monologues, almost like jazz riffs that are happening. Love Slipper is a bit is a bit of a different kind of setup that just functions differently, right? You like we said it, like I said, it has all the DNA of all these other things. And what Catherine's adaptation has done is trim, streamline some of the the I don't want to call them fatty bits, but perhaps indulgent might, might be a word um, because Josh was so loyal in his adaptation. Um, so incredibly loyal, much more so than many other people who have who've, who've embarked on this journey. Um, and resultantly, uh, my hope was when we found out that Catherine was going, I was told that Catherine was going to be adapting this. My hope was that we would able to we would be able to do exactly what has been done, which is streamline the action, keep the best of the speeches, um, and keep the humor and the comedy. Um, pointed towards what it is and then in the transposing of it to howard respect what is great about howard and what we know about howard and what josh intends to keep and activate about that specific hbcu setting as well as the psychology of the space hearing it now in the serialized form having gone through this process of making it heard uh, and then being able to see it in your mind, does it make you want to make the film? Yes, more so. Um, absolutely. Because there are ideas that listening to it activates for you. You're like, oh, we could do this and we could do that. And we could set this in the here. And and a good a good podcast, just like a good play or a good speech in a play or a good lyric activates imagery in your mind, right? Like it, it it creates images in your mind and the power of Shakespeare or any kind of real spoken word or performative uh, poetry or, or, or music with words or lyrics um, is that it, it, creates, it creates an image or a situation or a feeling in your mind in instant and then smartly stacks one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other. Um, 
And yeah, listening to it absolutely makes me wish, oh, it would be great if we could create a, a film version of this. And, and it, having listened to other podcasts of, of um, having listened to some of the other um, play on podcasts, it, I have that same feeling as well, you know, where it's, I'm listening to it, but in my head, I'm like, oh, this is what, this is what the movie in my mind, mind is, right? Anything you would do differently if you were to start over with this process? I love this cast. I think it's an incredible mix of voices. I think it's an incredible mix of artists. And my friend, Sarita Covington, who's in this cast, uh, Sarita and I went to Yale together and and plays go Rosalind. back quite a long time. I'm sorry. Yes. Plays, um, not Rosalind. No, Kate. She plays Kate. Kate. Catherine, yeah. Yeah, she plays Catherine. Um, and as well as one of the two intellectuals, not uh, Hala Furness, but Sir Nathaniel. Sir Nathaniel. Uh, Sarita wrote me a very nice note that said, really, I'm just here for the vibes. And those have been top notch. And I think that the longer that we do this and make this art, um, especially as we are sort of in the middle part of we we're firmly, Sarita and I are firmly in the middle part of our career. We're 10 or uh, 15 years out of school um, and we have earned our careers and we're, and we're very, not like very satisfied, but I would say in a pretty good place. And so the reason to say yes to something like play on and the reason to do something like play on is because you want to be with great artists. And, and I think that that is, if I, if I took anything away from our time at um, classic stage is the joy of these pro these projects is getting they're they're great plays and so getting great great plays require great artists to to answer their or answer those questions so it's been a real pleasure in getting to bring back some artists old and new uh for this particular project you know like i said sarita tiffany and ashley and i all went to school together at yale uh before josh and tanya pickens and i were in we weren't in tanya was in and i was the assistant director uh on all's well that ends well in shakespeare in the park in 2011. uh so there's there's quite a bit of history throughout all of this uh brandon jones and i go back uh to doing some very strange very weird experimental theater downtown <laughs> um i feel like all of us have those friends right uh <laughs> And um, yeah, so um, I what a treat to come back with this particular group of artists and here in the serialized form, sorry, Michael, I feel like I've not answered your question, uh, but here in serialized form, what is so great, I think, is that each piece propels you to the next thing. It's not, by, by breaking it up this way, it again distills things into a, oh, this is the episode in which this crazy thing happens. This is the episode in which they're Muscovites. This is the episode in which you put the play within a play on. Um, and then Lindsay's written these songs, which is like crazy and amazing. Um, Lin Lindsay Jones, and, our sound designer. Yeah. You know, and I, I can't remember which episode. Is it episode one or episode two that ends with, with Don Armato singing along with Moth? Yes. Um, yeah. That is just, I mean, Brandon Jones can actually, Brandon Jones who actually do plays Don Armato can really actually sing and play bass guitar. He's a, he's a wonderful musician. Um, and he's on Spotify, so you should listen to him. But him singing in a fake Spanish accent uh, to this sort of Bessie Smith-inspired song is is hilarious and incredible. And one of the sort of, I would say one of the highlights of getting to work on this is, is getting, to, getting to see those fun collaborations. Was there an aspect of this story that you found particularly uh, challenging that was sort of gratifying to solve, right? Because it's audio only, because so much of this uh, involves kind of visual gags. What was there, was there a particular thing that, that really just stuck in your craw that you, that you were like, aha, that worked in the end when we finally had it through the post-production mm. process? 
I think one of the things that has always annoyed me about the different versions that we've done is the play within a play at the end. The gags never quite work because they have to be so visual. Um, you know, Pompey the Great and all of that kind of uh, Medusa and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so having the, we haven't gotten to those episodes or we're starting to get to those episodes, but knowing already the kind of work that we're doing, um, the idea of getting to activate and really make those so that the play ends with the big barrel of laughs and then we cut that and then we suck all that air out of the room. Um, if you, when you're, we've performed it or done it as in the reading form or even in workshops, you know, it is, it is one of those pieces and parts that can really only shine if you are per, per really performing it behind it, behind a, uh, what are those things called? Behind a music stand or behind a table, it doesn't, it's not, you're not going to get the same visual joke as, you know, this guy wearing this ridiculous lion costume or this person wearing this ill-fitting armor and being really scared. But if we can paint those pictures, uh, we're going to paint those pictures through the sound effects and you're, that part is finally going to work. Um, and you're finally, hopefully people will find it funny and it will generate some laughs and that laughter balloon can build, it will hopefully build and build. And then as Shakespeare, I believe intended in the way that I, I love this. It is one of my favorite things as a director. You give the audience laughter and then you take all the air out of the room. And Shakespeare does this in the play by laughter, 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 play within a play. And then the king, the announcement that the king of France has died was amazing, right? Like, wow. Um, I hope that our audiences will have that feeling that they're cruising along and it feels like a happy ending to a romantic comedy. And then Shakespeare ends it, you know, and potentially Josh has, has mentioned for perhaps a sequel, Love's Labor's One, or Love's Labor's Found. Mm -hmm. I love that idea. I'm here for it all day. Um, but I, I really hope that we, we, if we, we do nothing else right, and we've done a whole lot right, I really believe that uh, under, under your guidance, Michael, and this incredible cast, if we do nothing else right, if we get that big sort of sense of humor and jokes in, in, in the poor clowns performing this play, and then and that laughter and choice, it feels like it's building, and then we, we take all of that out um, of the room, that, that is, it's a very exciting thing. Um, and I, I would be really thrilled if we could, we could pull that off. The serialized part of it is such a treat because every single episode has at least one or two things where you're like, oh, this is so fun. Um, or these people are hilarious. Or this great Barone speech on love, you know. Um, yes. And I had worked with Russell Jones before. Uh, he went to school with Eileen uh, at BU. Um, and so they are who good. plays the King of Navarre. Thank you. Um, yes, so Russell, uh, who's had a wonderful, long, decorated career, uh, and is, is very good friends with my wife because they went to undergraduate together at Boston University, um, getting to know him and his work, as well as um, Sean uh, Randall, who plays Costard and the young, Dumaine. I, I believe Dumaine, yes, Costard and Dumaine. Um, both of those guys come from the New York City labyrinth theater company tree of acting and they brought that kind of truth to it um and that kind of emotional ruggedness and rawness um and just as artists i think collaborating throughout this process they've been really lovely and wonderful um the older i get uh the more i'm concerned with just like as sarita said just the vibes can we get some good people in the room doing good work caring about good stuff uh and that you know, it's a credit to you as well, Michael, um, in creating an atmosphere that really feels like that. Thank you for that. And I, I agree. It was just great vibes all the way through. I wonder, just as a, a way to kind of close it out here, what do you want people to take away with them from this experience, from hearing this story? Is there a message that you feel more than anything uh resonates with this 
story? One of the things that, one of the lines that has always stuck with me, and he didn't really touch it all that much, which is a wise choice, because when you have greatness, you don't mess too much with it. Um, I'm going to paraphrase it badly, but uh, from women's eyes, this doctrine I derive. They are the books, the something, the academes, um, that from that from now all of these, this very long list, uh, spring forth true Promethean fire. I read those lines many, many years ago as an undergrad. When I first worked on this play, I looked right away to see if those Buran speeches still contain that. It is the smartest thing that Shakespeare says in the whole play. And it's the most poetic and beautiful thing, which is the real thing that bears study is the thing that you love, right? That's where the fire really comes. It's not from, they are the books, they are the things that are worthy of study. And this pride that you have in abstaining or abstention or holding back or restraining what it is you really want that's it's false pride and it's false modesty and there's so much about like going against the nature of who we truly are you know spring has sprung uh these lovers are are wanting to so my hope is that if people take anything away from this if there's a lesson necessarily it's that go for what you want um and that abstention isn't necessarily the answer if you're denying your, your own sort of natural impulses. Of course, if your natural impulses are to like murder people, like don't go that way. But if there's someone that's caught your eye, um, a certain specific someone, take a chance. You know, um, repression is unhealthy as we can see throughout this play. And then the other thing that I would hope that audiences would take away, um, whether knowingly or not, it's just what an incredible celebration of Black excellence and joy this podcast and this series of stories is. I believe we are the first all-Black cast um, in the play on history. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think that we, we embraced that. And I think over the course of, of working on the piece, one of the things that I, I just wanted to foreground, I said this on day one, is there's incredible amounts of artistry. I mean, you have Tony Award winner, Tanya Pinkins, you have several Broadway actors, you have, you know, stars of film and TV all throughout this cast. That's a ridiculous and, and an embarrassment of, of talent. Um, it's all shepherd, shepherded under my guidance, but in service of, of Josh's story. And it's really lovely and beautiful and it's well told and it's funny and all those things. So I hope a go for what you want is one part of it. And B Shakespeare belongs to all of us. And in this particular piece, in this particular series, it's a, it's a celebration of black joy of black excellence. I love the idea that, Hey, when we're done with this, we can send this to the woman who's the head of theater at Howard and be like, hey, Nicole Salter, here's an entire podcast celebrating the history of your institution. And it has all the wonderful cachet and, and delight and humor of Shakespeare, as well as in some ways, you know, we're not putting on Howard as a costume. We're celebrating Howard in an authentic and real way. And you talked, we start. We started this conversation talking about generational sort of connections to these things. And I think for many people of color, whether they're immigrant, first-generation immigrants like myself, or they came to this country many, many years ago forcibly like Josh, we all are looking for how we belong and how we connect to this and how we connect to this country, to this story. And that is also what Play On Podcast is about, right? Like, how do we connect to Shakespeare? How do we reinvent Shakespeare? How do we take ownership of Shakespeare in a new and exciting and different way? And every single one of these projects, it's so wonderful and insane to me that, as I mentioned earlier, they were names on a chalkboard. Mm -hmm. And now they, have, over the course of all this time, 11, 12 years, it's 2023, right? So over the course of these 11 years, 
they have transformed into so many different kinds of things. Uh, you got to work on them as an actor. Now as an executive producer, I got to work on them in three different forms as a director. That's so crazy, man. Um, and every single one of them has been delightful in a different way. Um, what an incredible joy. And then also to get to re-engage with his plays in a different, in a different sense. It, it's, it's like this weird version of living theater history. And then also understanding that for an entire other generation, this podcast is going to be their version of listening to, of what they think Shakespeare is. You know, like the podcast will someday get assigned to school kids mm -hmm. um, or people or students at Howard, right, to listen to as part of this whole thing. And I think that's incredible. Like, what an incredible thing. I agree. I think it, it really is just so exciting and thrilling. And, and we we were so fortunate to have this incredible cast uh, led by your uh direction and experience with this play i want to thank you for following two girls into the theater in san diego <laughs> and uh realizing your destiny as theater artist nelson t eusebio the third it's a real uh honor and privilege to get to work with you and i look forward to working with you again on some other podcast or stage production or film down the line well, let's do the Henrys. If you were in the Henrys, let's do it, man. Let's absolutely do it. You've been listening to the Play On Podcast bonus content series. You can learn more about the Play On Podcasts at Next Chapter Podcasts website, ncpodcasts.com. That's N as in next, C as in chapter, podcasts with an S at the end, dot com, where you can find other Play On Podcast series and interviews, along with talk podcasts like The 500, The 10, beef with Bridget Todd and a whole lot more. I'd like to thank Jeremiah Tittle, the founder of Next Chapter Podcasts and my producer Pete Musto. He is also our audio engineer today. Our editor and sound designer is Justin Cortese. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcasts for updates on all the latest content and don't forget to rate and review our shows. It really makes a difference. I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works in the Play On podcast series with you, along with lots of enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcasts. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Next Chapter Podcasts.